Hi, you're listening to the Media Intelligence Explained podcast. I'm Vlado, one of the hosts, and together with me is Alicia. Hi, Alicia. Hello, Vlado. It's actually our first real episode, right? Yeah, kind of excited about it. We're still <laughs> learning the ropes, I guess, but we are getting better and better. Absolutely, absolutely. Our first episode, the so-called zero episode, was kind of hit. Uh, we introduced it for um, the FIBEP uh, technology meeting in Athens, right? We received a lot of positive feedback. So to everyone who listened to that episode, thank you. We are Welcome really, back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. really, really humbled. And we received so much positive feedbacks and we pretty much decided that we will come back. And here we are. And today's topic. Topic. We, we said, okay, we need to start with a little bit different approach this time. When we started the podcast, we wanted to go directly to the advanced topics. But some of the feedback which we received was, okay, hold on, first explain the basics and then go to the advanced topics like uh, artificial intelligence, automations, etc., etc. So that's why we decided to start with several episodes, which will be exactly that introduction to the basics into the media intelligence world. And today we will cover the media monitoring part of the media intelligence world. Our guest today is Florian Laszlo from Observer. He's the CEO of Observer. And we actually recorded the interview with him. And it was awesome, right, Alicia? Yeah, Florian is one of the founder of FIBEP. So he was like really important guest for us to have on the podcast. And his insight is amazing. He's like the best guy we could actually have for explaining how media monitoring companies work. He's in the field for 20 years almost. So can't wait to show you the interview. And the interview will actually happen in like half an hour. So if you don't want to listen to the first part, which will be recorded right now, and we will cover announcements from FIBEP and some industrial news, just skip that part and go like half an hour in the future, and you will go straight to the interview with Florian Laszlo. Before that, we would like to say thanks to Identrix, which is the company sponsoring this podcast. And we would like to thank uh, Sofia Karakeva and Alessandro Caderle. And sorry, Alessandro, if we are not pronouncing <laughs> properly your name, but yeah, this is how we pronounce it with Alicia. But yeah, uh, we would like to say thank you to Sofia and Alessandro for helping us with this episode by producing it with the different things which are required to actually record the podcast. So thank you again. And finally, we reach the announcement section. So we actually have an announcement from Fibet. So last Thursday, so it was April 28th, uh, uh, FIBA held a webinar uh, that was called Media Monitoring and Analysis During the War. And the two guests who were hosting the webinar was Oksana Kononova, from which, who is a CEO of Look Me Ukraine, and Karolina Fursevich, which is a head of international business development in press service monitoring media. So Oksana is from Ukraine. She is currently stationing in Lviv. So she was talking about how her company is holding up in the time of war, how much revenue they were able to stay, yeah, to hold uh, how much of their staff is still working, how do they keep in touch with their staff. So it was really interesting and insightful. Also really sad, but it was really something 
inspiring to hear that they are still able to to hold their company together in the time of war. And the other speaker, which was Karolina Fursevich from Press Service, was talking about the new approach for media monitoring in the time of war. So what to do when the war is basically on your doorstep, like in Poland. So monitoring of brands in local media is no longer enough because you actually have to monitor outside of just your local market. And whatever you do, your brand might end up in crisis because the war is a constant crisis, right? So she also covered the, because there is, uh, I don't know if Bulgaria is the same, but we have a lot of backlash for the companies that are supporting in any way Russia and uh, are in constant crisis right now. So because mm-hmm. there is a lot of dispute around them and there are boycotts of their products, etc. So she also mentions how they are helping clients who are affected by the boycotts. So it was really interesting uh, webinar. And if you would like to get a here, just contact Feedback Secretariat and get a, a recording to listen to. It was really insightful. Both Oksana and Karolina were great speakers. So I hope you will get to listen. For sure. I will personally listen to, to that recording too. I know that your company is based in Poland. Is it challenging times right now in Poland for companies like yours? I guess it was at the beginning because we didn't really know what to do. So, you know, that's the first time in many years that we had the war so close to us. So the first two weeks were like really nervous. So me personally, I took a week off from work to help the Ukrainian refugees because the first wave of the refugees were just coming in and we didn't have anything organized. So at the beginning, it was only people, like common people who were giving help to the refugees. Right now, we also have the, the cities itself have their own establishments, etc. But for, at the beginning, it was really chaotic and a lot of people had like, you know, it wasn't a great time to do business, right? But right now we are kind of get used to it. Unfortunately, it's sad to say, but we are just keep going, right? It's kind of similar in Bulgaria. We are not that close, but there are a lot of refugees from Ukraine in Bulgaria. The Bulgarian government was kind of slow in their their reaction. People were not that slow. Gradually, the Bulgarian government offered some support. Right now, it withdrew some of their support uh, for the refugees, but people people are not. We are pretty much crossing fingers that uh, this nightmare will stop anytime soon. Saying that, we need to go to the industry news of the month section of our podcast and actually, yeah, tell our first big news. Yeah, so the first big news, I think everyone is talking about it, is Elon Musk finally bought Twitter. Yeah, he was talking about it for (laughs) some time and he finally did it. So there is a lot of speculation what's going to happen to Twitter because Elon said that he's the absolutionist of free speech, right? So he wants to make sure that Twitter will be like a center of free speech and that we can exchange our thoughts freely on Twitter and I understand that in his mind right now, Twitter is not this kind of space. It's not free enough for him. So I know that you are a big Twitter user. So what do you think about Elon buying it? When Elon Musk purchased Twitter, he said just a few things, but they are really, really interesting for us to comment. First of all, he said that free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. So pretty much 
he really stressed out that from his new position, he will, in a way, review all the practices for content moderation in Twitter. And this is really vague. And most of the fears of the Twitter future comes because of that part of his statement. A lot of people are afraid that uh, moderation rules will be abolished, that far right or extremists will find new media to broadcast their ideas. This is a really huge fear for uh, the modern media because they're thinking that a lot of politicians like the President Trump will in a way be reestablished back to the platform, which actually is not going to happen because Mr. Donald Trump started his own social platform called Truth Social, which is pretty much a copy of Twitter, but that, that's another story. So maybe Mr. Trump is not going back to the platform, but the fear is that a lot of other people who got banned will go back to the platform and that the platform will degrade to not that safe place anymore. I guess that's that's one of the biggest fears, right? Because right now we have the report button, right? So if someone yep. is uh, writing hate speech or is uh, like writing something really offensive, you can just report them. You can also block them, but also report them to the Twitter uh, so they can ban them from the platform, for example. But um, I don't know. Twitter is a place with like really hot, when a lot of people will have like really hot takes then and a lot of political discussion is happening on Twitter. And uh, sometimes it gets out of hand. And I think it it's, it was useful to have this restriction that we, that we have, right? So you cannot write certain things. And it's also, I'm still hoping that people will still can feel safe on the platform. I think that was the biggest fear that you will not longer be safe using this platform, right? Because someone might come to your profile and start writing things about you or something like that and, and call it it's free speech, right? So I think that's one of the biggest fears. Yep. Another thing which Mr. Musk said is that I also want to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features. I'll put a full stop here because actually he's addressing the fact that there is no an edit button for tweets, yeah. which was a huge demand by actually his followers. He ran a poll just a few weeks ago and the majority of the people who responded to that poll, and by the way, Mr. Musk has, I believe, like 80 million followers on Twitter. Oh. The majority of them, uh, something like 90% of his the people who voted on that poll said that they want that edit button. So pretty much this is a criticism to Twitter, how conservative they are, the fact that they are not adding new features. Maybe for the past five years, the biggest feature was the way they increased the size of the tweet from yeah, 140, I believe, characters to 280, something like that. So this was the biggest feature which they introduced. What do you think about that? What kind of features are missing? And do you think that these new features in a way can bring new challenges for the media intelligence business? Yeah, so I was wondering about them. I have an account on every social media platform and I try to stay on top of my game and make sure that I know what's going on or how the platform is doing. But Twitter is a mystery for me. So it's an <laughs> account that I don't really understand. I don't really understand how the algorithm is working. So why I see certain things and why as things that I tweet with all these hashtags, they have, for example, like 10 viewers, right? Mm -hmm. So 
it's really something that I guess would change. So it will be easier to, because sometimes my Twitter is, uh, I follow a lot of accounts, but my Twitter is like really passive. So mm. it's, you know, always the same things. And I was wondering, would they feed me like new publication, like for example, what's happened on Instagram, right? So they actually showing you more of recommended content, not only the content that you follow. And I'm wondering about that. Would that change? Would that be something that people on Twitter would like to see or not? So the edit battle, of course, that should be something that was always on the platform because, you know, writing fast to Twitter and just sending it and then seeing that you made a typo is really stupid, right? <laughs> that you cannot just fix it. You should have, for example, like even like three minutes to fix your tweet after tweeting it. Yeah. Of course, someone already took a screenshot of it and it's on the internet forever, but you just can stay with that original tweet. Absolutely. A lot of people think that actually to introduce new features in Twitter is really straightforward, but the problem with Twitter is the scale of the platform. This, like we're talking about millions and billions of tweets published on a daily basis. So I assume that each new feature, uh, which should be introduced to a platform like that, and we want all of this to work simultaneously between different platforms. There is a website <laughs> a platform. It's extremely challenging so let's let's hope that if they in a way improve their pipeline and the speed with which they introduce new features that they're not going to introduce a lot of bugs and downtimes etc you mentioned algorithms that you don't know how the algorithms work and actually this was addressed by Mr Musk in his statement he said that one of his goals will be making the algorithms open source in order to increase trust. Clearly here, he addresses the criticism towards the platforms that the algorithms of the social media platforms destroy the fabric of society. This is one of my favorite statements, favorite uh, the opposite way, of course, but uh, this is one of the biggest criticism towards social media. And he's really hoping that by open sourcing the algorithm, and to be fair, if the algorithm is open source, only tech people will be able to actually understand how this software works, uh, because I'm sure that this is not going to be a straightforward task to understand it. But yeah, if he does that, he hopes to increase the trust because a lot of people are saying that algorithms are promoting, how to say, very polar content, like they promote content which will lead to reaction. And because of that, all the comments or all the posts which we are seeing could be really provocative for us because engagement and reaction are measured by replies or likes or any social interaction with the post. So yeah, this is his way to address that fear. What do you think about this? So... Yeah, it's just kind of thing that when you stay on one social platform, you kind of stay in, in a bubble, right? So yeah. it's, so for example, in my bubble, there is a lot of people with this kind of beliefs, right? So, and it's easy for me to think that everyone thinks the same way as I do, right? And then sometimes there is, for example, a certain hashtag that is trending and I will go into that hashtag and see a lot of people who have like completely different opinion than me. And I think it would be good to have the, the algorithm make 
make it you see the both sides of difference for a certain matter, right? So not only seeing the people that you agree with, but also the people that you disagree with mm-hmm. and then start a discussion with them. But again, that would have to be a very, I don't know if Bulgarians are the same, but Polish people on the internet are savage. So I think that people who are anonymous or who think that they are anonymous could be a little bit harsh to Yeah, so what about that? Because Elon actually mentioned that he would like to, how do you call it, verify, right? So verify all the users. Absolutely. He said that he, he wants to authenticate all humans because he wants to fight spam bots. This is very interesting part because he's really pro-free speech and at the same time he wants all the people verified, which is really Actually, it's very hard to do, but at the same time, it's really frightening uh, because how are you going to authenticate that many people? Twitter has millions of users all over the world. So uh, there should be a global identification platform powering all of that. I'm not sure how they will force or work, what kind of documents they will require for regular users like me and you to provide to Twitter in order to authenticate, in order to use the service. But this is this is kind of dangerous. A lot of people will be really afraid that by providing all of these documents, they will be endangered, monitored, yeah. etc. Uh, so pretty much this could lead to some, some negative effects yeah, uh, regarding freedom would, of speech. People would be afraid of their data, like yep. getting stalled, right? Stolen, right? So at the first glance, it seems like a good idea because everyone will be writing under their own name. So they won't hide under the avatar and, and like a nick name. Yeah. But uh, on the other part, yeah, that would be like a really big problem. How to verify that number of people? What kind of documents would they need to to be verified? And what if I don't want to provide this document? Would I still be able to use the platform or not? So if not, was that really a free speech platform or no? (laughs) Yeah, so that's something that... But again, the Twitter became like Elon Musk personal plaything, so he can do whatever he wants with it, right? Yeah, and how all of this is going to affect the media intelligence world? Uh, for sure, if the platform becomes more alter, like if we have more official influencers, if mm-hmm. like if they manage to remove anonymous users. Maybe this will allow the media intelligence industry to measure properly the influence of the individual users there. Um, maybe it will be a way easier to create unified profiles of the same people in, let's say, Instagram and the same people in Twitter to, in a way, create aggregated influence scores, stuff like that. Maybe the content will kind of improve, but still, my opinion is that it will become more similar to Instagram. Instagram is very moderated platform. Most of the posts are pretty much the same. Like you have different classes of uh, people, like content creators there, but still it's not, nobody recognizes Instagram as open source intelligence tool, but Twitter is such a tool. So imagine before the war, there were a lot of accounts leaking the movement of Russian military forces in Russia. So right now, if everyone is authorized, this type of content pretty much cannot appear on Twitter because it will be dangerous for the people distributing this type of content. So yeah, we'll see what will happen with Twitter. A lot of people ask me, what do I 
personally believe will happen. Am I an optimist or a pessimist for Twitter? I'm a moderate optimist. There are a lot of things which Mr. Musk said, which are a little bit controversial. But at the same time, Elon Musk proved that when he wants something done, he delivers. Like he managed to launch rockets in space, he rediscovered electric cars, etc. So pretty much he delivers the product uh, he promised to deliver. So from that point of view, I'm really enthusiastic of how Twitter will change feature-wise. But Twitter is a very complicated thing. It's a very different platform compared to just a private company or like an automaker or even like a rocket science company. It's, it's not like it's yeah. more complicated uh, because a lot of people are using this platform and we are talking about communities. We are talking about societies. We are talking about elections, culture, etc. And we'll see. So uh, are you an optimist or pessimist about Twitter? I'm actually a, a more pessimistic because I don't believe that one person owning this kind of platform that's supposed to be a free speech platform is a good idea, right? So it's still Elon can use it because Elon is a businessman, right? So yeah. he can still use it to tweak the same thing that he used with Bitcoin, right? So he can make with just one tweet, make Bitcoin rise or, or go down. And I think that's a lot of power in, in one hand. It's making me kind of, you know, we all going to be on his mercy <laughs> with this yeah. platform. Okay, Let, let's move on. Enough, enough, about, about. <laughs> enough about Twitter. Let's talk about the European Union. And this time the European Union wants to regulate companies, actually like Twitter, Google and Meta slash Facebook, they have a new act. And this time the act is called Digital Services Act. It's still under development. It's not ready, but I pretty much try to, to put a label to that act. What is it going to be about? And a lot of media try to do the same. And they really focused on one of the aspects of that act, that when this new legislation becomes reality, big platforms, and finally EU define what a big platform is. These are platforms with more than 45 million European users. So we, it's very safe to say that this act is designed to regulate Google, Facebook, and maybe Twitter. I'm not sure mm -hmm. how many Europeans are using Twitter, but let's put Twitter in that uh, bucket. But yeah, they want these platforms to disclose how their algorithms work. So maybe <laughs> that's why Elon Musk wants to open source the Twitter algorithm in order to do this before that regulation. But yeah, this regulation will pretty much force Google and Facebook to disclose how their algorithms actually work for researchers, which is interesting thing. But uh, and all the headlines of the media publications, they covered only that aspect of the Digital Services Act. The problem with the Digital Services Act is that it's not just that. It's so many other regulations. I call it all the regulations which they pretty much forgot to do. So right now they yeah. put it in one single act. And I will just briefly explain about the different aspects of that regulation, because it's, I believe it's very important for the media intelligence world, because pretty much it regulates how the platforms work. I will start with the first aspect. And 
the EU wants to regulate that targeted advertising based on individuals, religion, sexual orientation or ethnicity will be banned in EU. And also minors cannot be subject to targeted advertising. So, yeah, this is this is the first aspect. They will regulate advertisement. Do you agree with this? Uh, do you have yeah, comments? Of course, of do course. I think, this? for example, Meta is actually banned advertising for children. So, when if you would like to create a on Instagram on Facebook, you would like to create an advertisement, you actually cannot choose the age group yeah. lower than eighteen years old, right? So they are ready for for this uh, regulation. And of course, that should be it. Children are spending a lot of time on on their phones or their mobile devices, and they are really impressionable. And we should shouldn't let companies to advertise whatever they would like on these platforms. Still, of course, there is a way to advertise music influencer or whatever reason, but just to just think that we cannot make like straightforward advertisement to children. I think that's great. Why did they specifically say about the ethnicity, religion and sexual orientation? I'm not really sure. Maybe there, there was some cases that we are not, we don't know of that it was advertised, but specifically to homosexuals, for example, and maybe that someone would call this discrimination. Now, when I think of it, maybe, maybe it was made that way that, for example, you are person who is a Catholic and would like yeah. to make a commercial for homosexuals that actually would make them feel bad about themselves or something like that. So maybe that's why you cannot use that anymore. This is the first thing they want to regulate. Mm -hmm. The next one is completely different. They want to regulate the so-called dark patterns. And by the way, this was something new, even for me. I'm 42 years old and I have more than 20 years experience with new media. And this was the first time I met that term. But actually, dark patterns are these confusing or deceptive user interfaces, which like stop users to unsubscribe from something or maybe all these GDPR pop-ups, which okay. uh, uh, media websites uh, developed. Uh, my personal opinion is that uh, very often they fall in that category too, because you, uh, it's very easy to agree on something, but you don't no, do not actually understand. Yeah. So yeah, but dark patterns will be regulated. And the European Union says that actually canceling subscription from a platform should be really easy. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. So yeah, uh, dark patterns will be over very soon. I'm sure that you agree with this. Uh, yeah, you support of course. This, this type of regulation. The next one we actually already covered. These are in a way helping researchers to understand how these platforms work. I understand why they want to do this, because as we said previously, there is a lot of fear that social media is changing the fabric of society for commercial gains. They promote certain type of content, which leads to conflicts online. And after that, these conflicts in a way transfer to real life. Um, so yeah, uh, by open sourcing or in a way making 
the algorithms transparent to researchers, EU wants to work on this problem. Yeah, but it won't be only transparent for researchers, but also transparent for users, right? So whenever I log into, for example, Facebook, I should be able to see why am I seeing this post and not the other post, right? Maybe, as you say, it won't be as easy to understand for basic user, but if this will be available available to researchers, we will, for example, get a nice little article telling us how the algorithm really works, yeah? So that's for the common common people like like me, for example. And, um, and I think that would be really interesting. I wonder how many people would actually be interested in that because I'm not sure, but maybe not our generation, but the generation of our parents, They, I think they are using social media without like any filter on, so they kind of believe everything they see on social media. And it is really easy to polarize them because they're really impressionable yeah, with, with mm-hmm. everything they see on the internet. So if we would be able to show them, yeah, you are seeing this kind of content, not because it's true that you're seeing this kind of content because this platform wants to stay you to stay on the platform longer yeah. and wants yeah. you to write comments and wants you to be angry, basically, yeah. because when yeah. you're angry, you are more likely to write that comment. Uh, would that help with talking with, for example, with the little older generation than ours about mm-hmm. what they see on the internet? Yeah, yeah. Okay, this is really interesting perspective, but these are not the only things they they want to regulate. And we're jumping to hosting services right now. So (laughs) hosting services and online platforms will have to explain clearly why they have removed illegal content as well as give users the ability to appeal such takedowns. So from one side, any platform and any hosting service, I presume the, the biggest one, they need to remove illegal content fast. By the way, there is no definition what illegal content is, mm-hmm. and this could be dangerous if the definition is extremely broad. This can be misused by different law enforcements or different interested parties to take down certain content and this will lead to censorship. But yeah, that's the fear because of this. Uh, But the good thing here is that they will give users the ability to appeal such takedowns. So they do not accept that by default, the user is guilty. So the users will be able to discuss this. Yes. So I think that would be big actually with copyright law. So there's a big, especially on YouTube, there's a big thing with copyrights and people claiming the, for example, the part of someone else's video because there is a part of the song used there and they are taking the whole video down, right? So actually you can say, okay, this is fair use because I only use this small amount of this this sound and also I'm talking over it so it's not really clear to hear. And why is my video taken? So I think that would be really good for creators actually. Not, yeah. not for the maybe for the big companies who are making a lot of money by taking down these videos, but it will be great for the creators. Absolutely. One final note about this regulation: because they do not define what illegal is, they say that they will leave this to all the individual European countries to define. This is really again very frightening part because different European countries can interpret illegal different, of course, which if we take a look from a media perspective, leads to another attempt to, in a way, partition the internet. When we say internet, we think about this 
global common resource of knowledge and interaction. But slowly, different governments and different organizations, they started to introduce different legislation, which in a way, not privatized, but in a way, partitions the internet. So we have a Chinese internet, we will have European, and we'll not, we're not going to have only European Union internet. We will have different rules depending of the different countries. And there are 27, finally, right? Yeah. Are they 27? Not 20? Yeah, there are 27 European members right now. So all of this, which we, for us, internet was really simple thing, but we're turning it into not that simple thing. And yeah. this will result to, I believe, higher costs for data collection, higher costs for data moderation. The prices will go up. Yeah, especially for media monitoring companies, that would be an issue, right? So if you are monitoring something in one country and part of it is illegal in your country, what do you do with that content? Can you still show it to your client, right? So yeah. I think that would be something to really look out for. Absolutely. There is one thing which will be good for media intelligence companies, and this is the idea that the largest online platforms will have to provide key data to researchers, which pretty much means that the way I understand it, that any organization which does research and media intelligence organizations, they do research, will be able to, to get key data from these platforms. So maybe it will be easier not only for governments or users, but for companies like ours to understand how all of this works and will be supplied with the data to, to do that. Yeah, that's okay. actually a great news. Yeah, this is interesting for us. So we need to take a look at that. And finally, finally, the final one, which is regulated from DSA is large platforms will also have to introduce new strategies for dealing with misinformation during crisis. So misinformation, again, very interesting topic for the media intelligence world. I'm sure that the majority of the European countries are right now are flooded with misinformation because of the war. So I assume that this particular section of that regulation is in order to address that because they really put emphasis on during crisis. I believe there was a lot of misinformation, disinformation and propaganda even before the war. But right now, this is even bigger topic. What do you think about that? Do you think that governments will be allowed to censor media or they will just use it to counter uh, misinformation and propaganda? Yeah, so that's actually a big problem, right? So should the platform be responsible of what people are posting on the platform, right? So... The fake news are spreading so fast because they are clickable and they are made that way to be clickable, to be sensational. And there should be some mechanics to, to okay, see, okay, this thing is becoming viral. So is it true? So mm. can we something? Instagram is doing that, for example, with every COVID mention, there's always in uh, below the, uh, the post is always the information, get to know about COVID. And, and so you can read like actual educational information about COVID. Every fact that mentioned coronavirus, COVID, that mentioned shots, for immunity shots, etc. They are always marked with it. So I think the platforms are actually ready to make this kind of regulations. Yeah. Okay. And the final news for today, it's of course from the AI world, because yeah, we are really interested in all the new technologies and 
after all, this podcast was in a way inspired by the Tech Commission in FIBEP. We think, me and Alicia, that the most important tech event which happened in the AI world was the introduction of DAL-E2 or DALI2. How do you pronounce this? I think DALI2. DALI2. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is a new technology from OpenAI, which allows, allows educated machines to, to draw very interesting images just by telling them what to draw. And I was really impressed. Not only yeah. me, but I, this really blew my yeah, mind. So just by giving it a, like a text description of art, it can combine concepts and different styles of art and get you a ready image that's like so high quality, you wouldn't say it was made by AI, right? Mm. And it's also really good with making it look realistic. So there's like shadows and reflections and textures. So it can look almost like a real photo. Again, that might be really worrying in the yeah, perspective yeah. of fake news and producing like fake photographies, Absolutely. something that didn't happen. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's all really impressive. Yeah, uh, that's why we should be really careful who has access to this type of technologies. But my personal opinion here is that if open AI can do it in few years because of AI democratization, everybody will be will have access to this type of technologies. So any technology which allows the machines to draw or to write, it's dangerous because it can be used for good, but at the same time can be used for deep fakes or again spreading misinformation. If this is integrated into spam bot or any technology which goes to different websites and write comments, this could be very dangerous because it can generate false messages very fast compared to people. But still, I believe that uh, these technologies will be available to everyone in in few years. And we should be ready to, as an industry, to in a way detect all of this, to distinguish computer-generated images and computer-generated text and verify it. Is, it. is that true or not? Otherwise, the internet, the social media, and all these platforms will be flooded by computer-generated content, uh, which we cannot verify. And we know how important all of this is for the media intelligence industry. Yeah, so do you think there is a way to distinguish this kind of publications of so written or, or like this drawn publication from the one that were are handmade by humans? It's very hard. Right now, EU and several other research centers are heavily investing into technologies which will hopefully detect this. But it is hard. So right now, language generation technologies and technologies which allow the machines to draw are way ahead compared to technologies which allows us to catch all of this because the focus was not there. Everyone was really excited about, okay, let's train the machine to draw. And this is really exciting, but it could be dangerous. Yeah, I think like artists are sweating right now, right? So they're going like, to be out of their jobs if that's, you can just have an AI to, to do whatever you would like. Absolutely. That, that's another aspect which we didn't even touch because I'm really stressing of how dangerous this could be in environment where we don't have like physical restrictions of uh, information distribution, like, like the digital environment. But yeah, we will see. I personally support 
this type of uh, technologies, but we should be very careful how we use them and how do we distribute them. Because if they fail, and my opinion is that inevitably they will reach dangerous hands, we should be ready to counter the output of technologies like this. And saying all of that, I think that this will be the end of our news section. And stay with us for the interview with Florian Laszlo. It was awesome interview and stay with us. Hello. So today we have with us Florian Laszlo from Observer. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If not, please correct me. Uh, hello, Florian. Almost. Could you please... It's Laszlo. Laszlo. Okay, great. So could you please tell a little about yourself and about Observer? Yes, thank you for the invitation. My name is Florian Laszlo. I'm the CEO of Observer here in Vienna, and I'm a second-generation media monitor, as uh, my father bought this company, which is by now 125 years old already, wow. and uh, is one of the founding members of uh, our wonderful association, FIBA. Um, wow, absolutely, I, wow. I was not really intended to go into the business. I studied law. I was at the French Lycée here in Vienna and uh, then at the business school and then studied law. And I eventually even finished uh, my law uh, studies, which was a rather hard feat because I already started working in the company. And things kind of went the way they went. And I, I went with the flow and had a few... Uh, turns in life were decided for the direction that brought me here to uh, this company. And by now, I'm more than 20 years CEO of the company. And by now, the sole CEO of the company and uh, had the pleasure of being for five years Secretary General of FIBEB. And uh, FIBEB is very dear to me, an important organization that I always try to support. And... Privately, I have the big luck of having uh, a wife and four daughters and, wow. <laughs> uh, between 8 and 16 years old. And therefore, my life is quite busy and uh, there is nothing that anyone would call free time or leisure time. So there is always something to do. <laughs> oh, my God. So thank you so much for finding time for us yeah, between the running the company and having time with your daughters and wife. Okay. Uh, I would like to talk about media monitoring. So what's media monitoring, how to do it and again? So could you please tell us a little bit like when media monitoring started and how was it done and how is it different from press clipping? With words, it's always very complicated because the same words mean different things to different people and in different regions. So I would say that the press clipping, the media monitoring, this is always talking about the same thing. It is the same service that we provide. It only started 125 or 150 years ago in Paris with press clippings because there was only press. So naturally was called after what it usually was. And so the media monitoring is the same thing, but not only for printed media, but all for all other kinds of media. And therefore it is synonymous in a way. And the press clipping might be a little bit reduced to the printed media, 
But even nowadays, people want to have press reviews. And what they mean by that is not only the printed press, but still they say press reviews to that. So words and expressions have quite a long time that they keep on going, even when they're technically not uh, really correct anymore. And that's even in the internet age, the same thing. And so there are a few examples of things that are called in a way that actually is not correct anymore, but everyone knows what is meant. And so that's the good thing about it. So I would not differ in any way between media monitoring and, and, and press uh, clippings. Okay, so what exactly do media monitoring companies do? There are several answers to those questions. And with the richness of uh, more than 100 years of experience in a changing media landscape, you could define it in different ways. But starting from taking three steps back and looking at our business, it is the business of telling our clients what is happening in the media about them and about their main interests. So we are providing an information service and we're telling them what is being written and said about them. And this is still the core that has been on the foundation of our service and our industry as it was founded in Paris, where perhaps later on I can tell that little story, which is perhaps not true, but at least uh, very nicely put. And that keeps on going. And with every new media type and with every new media outlet, it is not changing. So in a way, at presentations, I sometimes say we're doing the same thing for now than more than 100 years because it's a human thing. Humans want to know what is interesting to them. And we are providing the means to also actually do that and get that done. And not only theoretically, because theoretically, everyone could read every blog post and all the newspapers, but it's technically impossible. So we are the mean of getting people the information that they actually want to find and want to see. And in a more technical approach, we're doing many different things, very complicated, but that's not as important to the client as having their, their, their needs met. You said that it's not possible to read everything in the internet. I'm sure that some of our listeners are asking the question, why? Why is not possible? Because of lack of time. That is the whole problem. And it's not only in the internet where it's really utterly impossible, but it's even in Austria, we have 16 dailies. If you start reading those 16 dailies, you have to go to your lunch break before you're finished. And then you have all the, the, the specialty media. So... Even there, it's not possible with a rather limited amount of, uh, of, of media outlets. So it's a very good point because actually what we are telling our clients, what we are selling is time. Right. Because we're selling them their time that they do not need to consume for those tasks because we do them quicker, better, more concise, and therefore we're actually in the business of uh, giving time. Wow, what a great answer. Okay, so media monitoring companies now not only provide the clippings, but what are the modern like products and services that the media monitoring companies can offer to their clients? You said that they can offer time, but how do they do that? In what kind of products and services? This is again a question of perspective. 
what the client gets, actually no one wants to get clippings. This is not something that you want to have. You want to have the information and you want to have the reasoning you can pull out of all those clippings. So this is the main point. So what we are doing is that in a way we're providing something which is in the end a clipping. And the clipping might be an extract from a print newspaper. It could be a cutout. It can be a link. It can be a link to a video. It can be just a full text. So a clipping has many variations and forms, but you can sum it up as, as clippings, as parts of media. And so this is what we're doing in all aspects of media types until Twitter and, and, and Facebook as well. They are all reduced to clippings because what the client wants to have is uniformity. He doesn't want to go to three different types of access points and then in different ways and treat them in different ways. So the clipping is kind of the unifier so that you get wherever, whatever is mentioned about you, you get in the same way, in the same outlet, at the same point of sale. You mentioned Facebook and Twitter. These are social media. Is it safe to say that right now social media, it should be a standard offering for each media monitoring organization? And I say standard offering, st standard, it should be including in the standard offering for uh, media monitoring services. Is this still something exotic for your clients? So from the perspective of a media monitor, it is a standard offering. And from the perspective of the client, as the, the, there are a few issues, so the local clients of international subsidiaries often are not interested in it because social media is international. There is no regionality in Instagram. So they don't care about those things because they're not touched by them. It's, they're not in charge of those things, so they don't need that uh, social media content. And on the other hand, you still have many clients who are saying, you know, actually, I don't work with that. I don't need it. I don't care. Or it's way too much. I can digest it and process it. So I'd rather not have it because I can do anything useful with it anyway. So I'm not paying money to getting it. Okay. And this is like a part of MMOs. So media monitoring companies uh, kind of duty to inform their client why is that important, why it should be keeping up with the yes, information? Yes, because it's also in our own interest because what we are earning money with is selling the most, the, the highest number of clippings possible. So this is why it's, again, many years ago, but 15 years ago, 15, yeah, pretty much 15 years ago, social media <laughs> is not a really a new thing. So 15 years ago, we started monitoring social media and it was in 06, 08 or something. And I was laughed at in international meetings because I told them we're selling Twitter by the clip. So we just added it to our media outlets and then our media list. And if a client appeared, he got a regular clipping without asking him, do you want it? Do you want to play a flat rate or whatever? Because clients couldn't digest it, couldn't know what it is. And so we just showed them and we just delivered Twitter. And then some said, oh, that's interesting. That's nice. Others said, I don't care. I don't want to have it. So we kicked it off the individual media list. And by that, we're still selling most of our social media monitoring on a per clip basis because most clients get five Facebook clippings a week and 
three Twitter clippings and perhaps eight Instagram clippings, depending on the client. So getting it to them at a flat rate of 500 bucks a month, those are pretty expensive clippings. So nobody buys that. But on the other hand, if you buy just for the regular clipping price, it doesn't hurt and you're in it. And that is the issue in those small markets like urine and like Austria, that we do not have 10,000 clippings. You obviously cannot sell by the clipping. Several times you mentioned clippings. And I think that for our audience, we need to describe how the clippings are consumed. I know that historically they were like a file and uh, customers received these files and they just read all the documents which were relevant for them. Right now, uh, there are newsletters, there are channels in Telegram, WhatsApp, wherever, where you can receive this type of relevant data. And there are dashboards, we call them dashboards or media listening platforms. If we speak strictly for media monitoring, do we mean all these different distribution channels or we still stick with like newsletters and files? For me, the clipping is the granular thing. It's the atom that is being amassed. And then you can look at those clippings in different ways, but the clipping is the basis and the clipping can, as I said before, be a link, be a video, be a file, be a PDF file, full text. And most of times it is all of that at once because one clipping, at least in our company, consists of all those types. You have the link, you have the full text, you have the PDF picture of it, even if it's online so that it's recorded and, and doesn't go away like links tend to do sometimes, also for legal precautions. And so it's all of that. And then in our platform, depending on what you want to see, you access those data points at different levels. So you entered perhaps on the dashboard level to get an overview. There you don't see any clippings, you see just the graphs showing the amounts where which media types, which keywords produce those clippings. But you can as well be on the level of uh, individual clippings and just reading them through you, like you would in a newspaper. So you go onto your iPad, you click on the first one, and then you turn the page until you're at the last one and you get a very quick overview. And if you want to, you can read all in detail or you just take a look at them and then by passing by, you know what happened today in the media in your respect and in your field of interest. And then you have the whole analysis part where it's even more about the details, where uh, the tags are the big thing. So it's not my company was mentioned, it is which persons were mentioned, which sponsories were mentioned, which products, uh, in what respect, positive, negative, ambivalent, and all those other things. Was there a picture in it or not? All depending on what the client's interest is, because there are some clients who tell us, send me only clippings where there's a picture. I don't care about non-picture clippings. Okay, they get only those. And others uh, want to have every detailed list where they're in, in a listing of events where it's just the clipping is kind of half a square centimeter big, technically, because it's just a list. But still they're interested in it. And others say, no, 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 nothing like that. No mere mentions, just give me the big ones. And so this is the individual approach that every client can decide what is a relevant clipping for them, and then 
get those analyzed. It's called Chartflow, where you can also again click through. It's very easy to use and uh, highlight the different aspects of those clippings. So I have more of a general question now. So if someone would like to start a media monitoring company, what kind of resources does he need? So what kind of specialists, what kind of technologists what kind of data, how to how to obtain that data? So I would not advise anyone to start a media <laughs> monitoring company nowadays <laughs> because it's very cumbersome and you need tons of money because the pre-financing is huge because you only can play with the market if you have everything. And so you need to get everything, but you don't have a client to pay for it. And if you have everything, then you can start to acquire clients. And then they're picky and say, no, actually, I don't want to change the provider because, you know, it's only a few hundred euros a month, but that's not worth it. It's way too troublesome to change the provider because then it's different. And so, so it's really hard to enter that market. This is why it's a very slow moving market because the value of our product is not that high price-wise, but it is very integrated into the processes at the client. So there is a very intensive client media monitor relationship. And this is what keeps us afloat because if Meltwater comes and Cision comes and say, yeah, everything new, everything cool, everything standardized, they don't stand a chance because the clients want to have it their way. So you need to be flexible. You need to be very close with the client. And this is what keeps us insulated from quick competition. Rather in Europe than in the US, the US, they're more flip-floppy. They try everything new and then they try another thing. And uh, so this is why the startups have caused uh, the friends at Burrell's way more headache than uh, here in Austria or in Europe because people are not tend not to go for the next shiny thing that quickly and rather say, ah, let's take a look at it. And so this is an advantage for the old company. So in short, you need tons of money, knowledge about the media industry, good access and communication skills to get to all those data points that you would like to get to because media are not very keen to share those data. So you need to be respected as a reliable partner. And, and then you need good people, people getting the clients and then, and then keeping the clients happy. And most importantly, and still, you need human readers. You need people who understand really what the client wants because the algorithms are nice, but they're not getting there because they do not think in the same way as the clients do. And so you need the the reader who is still really providing the data points and, and, and the clippings in the way that the clients wants to have them. And this is kind of the service because the standard automated service, the price point went down so dramatically that you can't pay the IT guys in the back. Okay, you said that media monitoring organizations are extremely challenging, but with this podcast, we are trying in a way to explain to people and to a little bit 
show how complex these organizations are. And we would like to, to tell them how many different roles and how many different specialists actually work in order to produce a product. So could you please tell us the major roles in this type of organization? Like for, for sure, we have IT people, but what do you do with them? Uh, you have people who understand media. How do we call them? Uh, some organizations call them mm -hmm. researchers, other editors. But yeah, just let's describe the roles uh, and just show how the complex all are, of this yeah. is. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, sure. Thank you. Perhaps to your prior question, moving into this field, I think the field is very wide and there are useful jobs for new companies within the field, but it's not starting with, I read my newspapers for my clients, because this is kind of the old school thing, which can be for on-top service providers, be a commodity that they buy in and then add value to it so that the client has an added value and they could do it in a different way and in a more client-oriented way than even the media monitors can do it. So I think there is room in our field and in our industry for new, not competitors, but new providers, like the whole AMEC field, where it's not about the basis like in FIBA, and every MMO can do the whole thing that also AMEC members can provide if they want to do it. So in... Uh, a cooperative world, it might make sense not to fully integrate horizontally, but to have partners doing it, have analysts who provide, whom you provide the data to, and those analysts then go deeper into the detail and provide further services to the client. That can make sense. And I think there's the potential for new companies and also new FIBA members because this is an expanding field, like you have three MMOs in a country, but probably, as in Austria, 8,000 PR agencies. That's the same approach. You don't need 8,000 media monitors, but 8,000 PR agencies. And so that's the same um, approach here with those uh, media intelligence specialists. But to your other question, Vlad, so I can only describe our company, but I think it's kind of the standard process yeah, in, in, in that our would be industry. great I'm, yeah. so on the one hand we have media acquisition so the media acquisition is kind of the subscription department as it was only print media but still you need to get more from the media than just a subscription uh, and you get it delivered by postal mail that was then by now you have contracts with the media they provide with the uh, digital data in an integrated way so you don't need to go in there and scan all those papers this is something we never did in austria because we established those contracts quite early we monitor close to 4,000 print titles in Austria. So let alone getting those in time on the server is a work of two people full-time because nothing ever works really properly, even with a postal mail or email or technical solutions and APIs. There's always something that doesn't work, so you need to troubleshoot. So this is a very important part of the media acquisition and also the basic data of the media, like the print runs, like the users, the unique users, and so on. The same thing is uh, in the field of online, where you need to manage the media list uh, so you cover everything extensively. Then you have radio and TV, 
Same thing, very tech-intensive and very expensive. And then you have uh, the social media platforms where you need to have contracts with those directly or with providers having contracts and providing the data. And they will work with a set of five different providers, sometimes even providing the same media platforms, uh, social media platforms, because we experienced that two providers provide not exactly the same content from those social media platforms because the social media platforms are a little bit flimsy and they don't want to really share all their content. So it's it's a mess there as well and, and even more unstructured than uh, with the good old printed media that you received by postal mail into your mailbox. And that is something. And then you've got those blogs and news groups which you need to access manually because they have the robust TXT so you can't get into it without being a human in the first place. So that's another field where you need specialists uh, who can who can do that. And that was only the data intake. The other data intake is the client department. So client comes in and says, I want to know everything about traffic. And you tell them, okay, traffic. What kind of traffic do you need, actually? And then you develop with the client what, she, what he actually needs. And then the client in the discussion realizes that he actually only wants to know about, I don't know, trams. And the rest of the traffic definitely doesn't interest the client. So it's only about trams. And so you reduce the information need to what the client really wants. And that is usually not what the client says he wants, but it's what you need to find out what he really wants. And that again shows you that an automated do-it-yourself service doesn't work because the client is not capable of really understanding the breadth of the media and what he then really gets. So this is a service and, and a consulting work that we need to do. And that is then translated into the systems so that it can be matched with the media data that we took in on the other side. And that is translated into Boolean search operators and that is translated to the humans that they really understand what the client wants and can find it. Please in the right explain way. more about the Boolean operators because I'm not sure that everybody knows what these are. So Boolean operators are a search query finds so for a computer text is just an amalgamation of letters which doesn't have any sense and computers do not understand what is really there so they search for patterns and in the search query they search for a pattern which can appear in in, in several uh, ways like you have you're interested in sport if you search for sport with an algorithm, you also find transport because it's a sport as well, even if it's not a sport in the meaning of the word. And therefore, you need Boolean operators to um, produce more complex search queries because you then say sport, but not transport, but only sport in connection to winter and to skiing or biathlon, ski jumping, but not if it's the Russian team, only if it's the Austrian team. So you get the point. Complexity that is quite easy to understand for a human is a 50 Boolean operator search query, which is then being applied to the text and still produces false positives and false negatives and can't interpret pictures. So therefore, we need a human reader who then weeds out the wrong ones and finds the right ones that the algorithm had to overlook because 
for example, a text within a picture or a logo within a picture, it's not really detectable. Technically, theoretically, yes, but not at price point that is viable. So this is kind of then the reading part. And then you have the basis of it all. You have those clippings. And then you need to process those clippings in several ways. On the one hand, you need to process those clippings so they get to the right person at the right time in the right email inbox, which is still the preferred ways of getting it via push uh, in those email inboxes because you're in the email anyway. And so you get those emails and say, ah, there is a new clipping. How interesting or not. And then there are data added by our analysts because you weeded out the transport in the winter sport and then you need to reconnect it because perhaps the transport partner of the winter sport team being Audi wants to know in how many of those winter sport clippings Audi was mentioned. They were driving around with the Audi and you could see an Audi logo. And then you need to weed out those after the reading by the analysis. And then in the analysis, you also evaluate how valuable was that showing of that wonderful Audi RS6 in those clippings because of the print run, of the followers, of the engagement of this individual clipping. And then you add quantitative data to it and qualitative data, meaning yes or no Audi picture, yes or no RS6 or RS4 and all the complexity of life. And this is then added in the tagging and coding department. So you have in the end, in those wonderful charts that you want to show to your client, something to show to him, which is more relevant and more interesting than just the media type spread between online social platforms and print and radio and TV. So you can detail that on the level of how is the top media list for those Audi clippings compared to the top media list to the Porsche clippings uh, in connection to ski teams and so on and so on. And this is then the relevant data that we provide to our clients and where, again, a whole other set of analysts are attached to because the data alone doesn't say anything to the client. He wants to have a presentation where the data is put in a way that he can meaningfully understand what that could mean for him. And so that's the whole consulting service on top of it, where no one ever sees a clipping, but only the metadata that we added with uh, automated and human services. Thank you for this. I think that right now everybody understands how complex this type of organizations are and how many diverse specialists actually are required in order to produce all these different services. Back to you, Alicia. Yeah, so you actually talk a lot about the clients and I wanted to ask you who is the media monitoring organization? Who, who are the clients? So who needs media monitoring and why do they need that? Again, taking three steps back, everyone who is in the media voluntarily or involuntarily or who wants to be in the media needs it. And therefore, our client base is very diverse and very wide because in a way, there are not many people not needing media monitoring. So the difference between the client and the non-client is if he understands it, that he needs media monitoring, or even if he understands it, if he says it's relevant to me or not. And this is the differentiator. So we have clients from government side, companies, brands, 
theaters, cultural institutions, museums, NGOs, individuals, VIPs, A, B, C, D, E, VIPs, depending on their stance in the public, and so on and so on. So it's a really wide array of different interests, and they also have different approaches to what they want to get from it. The ones are just loving it, having them printed out in color and just turning the page and saying, look how important I am and where I have been. And others do not care about that at all. They just want to see how many potential contacts did I make? Was it worth it sponsoring this individual? And uh, they're forgetting so much airtime. And others, again, are desperate to show their clients that what they had done for them was worth the money that they got for it, be it influencers or be it individuals, sports people that want to then show that it was worthwhile for getting the sponsor money. And those are then those clippings that my father always called those 10,000 euro clippings because it then can be that this one individual clipping of the highlight title page because you did whatever, hopefully not shoot anyone, but that got you on the title page, that is worth those 10,000 euros that you received in the first place. So every individual clipping is highly important. And this is, again, why we can't live with 95% precision. And we need actually those 99.5 precision, because if you miss that 10,000 euro clipping, you're really in deep trouble. I wanted to ask you about how did media landscape change in the last couple of years, but also currently with COVID and with the war just like happening just next door, how the services have changed, how the industry was affected by what's going on in the world. So in the, in the past 20 years, media monitors have been affected by the change in the media landscape. They had way more, much more work because it was everything new and complicated and they had to establish new uh, data streams. The old data streams didn't go away and there's kind of a rule that every so video didn't kill the radio star. It's every new media type is just added on top and the others don't go away. So complexity is rising, which is a good thing and a bad thing. The bad thing is more work. The good thing is more need in the market because there is no one who can say, no, 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 I got it myself. It's just impossible. The big challenge in the media landscape change is, I think, arriving now. We have Russia's aggression against Ukraine. We have the energy issue. There was climate change issue as well, and it's not going away. So prices are rising heavily for some goods that are relevant to the media industry. And that is personnel, that is paper, and that is energy. So I think the biggest issue that the whole communications industry and also the small media monitoring part of it faces is reduction of volume because you can't print those many pages of paper anymore. You can't publish that many articles on your online sites. You cannot fill your airwave with relevant content because it's too expensive to produce. So you have reruns and then standard content. And that is an issue when you are based on a volume-oriented pricing. So in the same amount of time, people get less mentions, so their media monitoring price 
tag is reduced, which is a strategic issue for media monitors like us who are on the uh, pre-clipping basis. And the other issue is even if you're on a flat rate model, that the importance of the media is being reduced and people understand that for the print part, they need to pay more. It's kind of ingrained. It's learned over the years and decades. Social media, that was the thing that was free, wasn't it? So the the understanding of the client that they need to pay there for the same amount as for the print is not really there. And then there are so many startups who say, no, no, we're doing everything for free. And then there are the platforms who are doing the analysis on Facebook. Facebook analysis is for free if you're a Facebook client. And if you're good with that, you just buy the Facebook analysis and do not need any other analysis on your Facebook data because you're happy with that. You're in your bubble, but if you're happy, it's really hard to get you out of there. So I think those are really the challenges and they are the same in online and the social and the print part. Um, So I think it'll be interesting and there will definitely be a certain consolidation in the industry in that classic workload producing part of classic media monitoring. If I can add to Alicia's question, there are a lot of voices in our industry that currently media monitoring organization should in a way extend their services by not only answering what is the relevant conversation regarding a person or an entity or a brand, but in a way start giving the indication, is this conversation authentic? I'm talking about propaganda and fake news. Do you think or do you agree with these voices that uh, this should be part of the goal and the services of the media monitoring organizations or we don't need to deal with is this true or false? Generally speaking, yes, definitely. As companies as enterprises, the media monitors definitely need to expand the scope of their service because in the basis, it is the basis, but it's only the basis and it's not an expanding industry from that part. Six years, eight years ago, uh, we invented the thing of neighboring markets and invited to FIBRB congresses people from those neighboring markets. And because I think it's really important to breadth and the scope of your work and of your service. Because with only I can send you clippings, there's not much you can achieve in today's market. We're doing market research. We're doing combined analysis. We are providing press releases. We are providing press databases to our clients. So there is a whole toolbox that we are offering to our clients. And this is what we definitely need to need to do also in in, in the future. So I think there will be expanding scope of their services where the integration of those services is the big benefit. And on the other hand, we will have many small specialists using the basic data that MMOs produce and add value to them and individualize that for in specific clients, but they then service 10, 20 clients like an agency and not a thousand clients like an MMO. And this is where the difference lies then. 
Okay, right. So you actually answer my next question a little bit. So I wanted to ask, in your opinion, how would the media landscape change the new future? So but actually said that a little bit that right now we are dealing a lot with propaganda and with fake news. Do you think that would be a big problem in the future? What are the ne next things that can change in our media landscape? I think this is really hard to guess and probably It'll go in the same way. I mean, just yesterday, Elon Musk bought Twitter and probably will change or definitely will change the platform and probably re reduce the relevance of the platform because he is doing it differently than Jeff Bezos is doing it uh, with uh, the Washington Post. So it's a normal procedure. And uh, do you remember MySpace? Yes, we are that's, that old, we remember. <laughs> that's it. So that's, that's, that's part of it. That's part of the game. But in the basis, it will still be the same because we are the same. We humans and the way we interact and how we communicate. And as media monitoring is a very human business, it will stay there because we're staying there. And the restaurant is changing, yes, but that's how it is. Okay, thank you. So our podcast is called Media Intelligence Explained. So I wanted to ask you, how do you understand media intelligence? What is it for you? I love the term media intelligence, especially because it was with my dear friend and then President Mazen Nahawi that we kind of came out, uh, came up with that word out of nothing. Uh, and it was in Dubai. And then we 2014. And then we said, okay, that's it. And we even had the World Media Intelligence Congress dubbed that way. It's very, it's, it's a very nice brand and word, which you can fill then with many items and many aspects. So it is kind of an empty shell still, but it's closely connected to business intelligence and that everyone knows. And this is in the end what it means. It is adding data to media that makes it intelligent so that you can make use of the data. And it's about the connection of data points so that you can make sense out of what is happening out there in the media, where you see how a story is trajecting through the different media types, where you see how you are seen, how your products are seen on an elevated level and not just, oh, so many clippings, but on, on the bird's eye view of a forest and not the tree by tree view of a forest. So if you're walking through a forest, you see everything very precisely, but you don't have a clue. But if you fly over the forest, then you've got media intelligence because you see the landscape, you see how it's evolving, where things are changing. And uh, that is what the media intelligence is to me. It's making all those data points intelligent by connecting them in a certain way and providing actionable results which inform our clients in a way that they can decide better in the future. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Florian, for the interview. It was great and very enlightening. Thank you for finding the time for the conversation. Yeah, no, it was a real pleasure. I love doing that. And, and, and thank you for giving me the possibility. And then, yeah, looking forward to seeing what you are making out of my words. And I hope it's not too long and too winded because that is something that my thoughts sometimes are. 
and then I hope it's understandable to everyone. It was extremely interesting and I'm, I'm sure that our listeners share our excitement of uh, everything you said. It was very inspiring and um, me and Alicia, we would really like to talk to you in the future for other topics. So yeah, feel free to be our guest again. Happy to do so. Just invite me. Sure. Okay. Thank you again and bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Media Intelligence Explained podcast. If you like this podcast, please go and subscribe to us in Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We should be in every platform. If you want to send us feedback, please write us an email. Our email is secretariat at fibeb.info or You can just go to Twitter and mention us uh, when you reply to the FIBEP Twitter profile. Your feedback is extremely important for us. If you want to support the podcast, please write a review in Apple Podcast. Hopefully the review will be good or just rate us on Spotify. Um, this too is extremely helpful for the podcast, especially if we have great ratings on Spotify. Another way to help us is to send us ideas for episodes. Again, write an email to secretariat at fibeb.info and we will read them. And if the topic is interesting, we will just plan an episode about that. few words about who worked on this episode. Uh, the hosts were Alicia Bors and me, Vlado Petkov. Our guest was Florian Laszlo. Producers of the episodes was uh, Sofia Karakeva, Alicia Bors and Emily Jadler. Audio editing and mastering was done by Anton Velev and we would like to say thanks to our marketing team, Anna Tsanova and Oresti Patricius. Thank you and goodbye.